Are you looking for adventure? Do you want to find peace? Long-distance trails offer you freedom and discovery. They offer a way to connect to yourself and to the world around you at the same time. The most popular trails have become crowded, but there are so many other trails that have plenty of space. The Trails Around the World podcast is here to introduce you to new trails and to new types of trails and to expand your horizons. Join me as we explore finding out what is possible and how to do it. Welcome back, everybody. Once again, it seems to have taken me about two months to put together the next episode of this podcast. I always think it's going to take a little bit less, but life seems to get in the way and it takes a certain amount of time. I already have the next episode recorded and ready to edit, and I've got two or three more interviews that are lined up after that. So please do subscribe, and I will continue bringing you new ideas for expeditions that you can put together on your own, both on land and on water. In this interview, I had trouble with my microphone for the first few minutes. That was my error but it is perfectly listenable, and so I hope you enjoy the interview. Greg Stamer, welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. You are, how should one put it, a a leading light in sea, sea kayaking in the United States and have been for almost 30 years. You're one of the foremost proponents of a, a kind of paddle that is one of the oldest paddles, but at the same time was regarded as somewhat new to Americans. You have accomplished two absolutely extraordinary expeditions, and, and you've stayed active uh, throughout your life. And so uh, welcome to the show. I hope we can discuss all those things. And um, why don't you... Uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you've uh, done in the world of kayaking. Well, thank you, Chris, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, I've been paddling since the 1980s in kayaks. Before that, I had a canoe, uh, but I was always attracted to kayaks because of rolling. The big thing to me about a kayak is that you could roll it and recover so unlike a lot of people, the first thing I wanted to learn is, is rolling. And that kind of got me into Greenland and other things. But, um, but I've done a lot of trips. For me, kayaking is freedom. I just love the feeling of being in a small boat and having, being able to feel every wave, every mood of the sea. Uh, but I've done a lot of trips you won't hear about. I mean, most trips, like I've been around Isle Royale several times with friends, I've actually portaged over the Greenstone Mountains of Isle Royale. Uh, Lake Superior, the Great Lakes, is probably one of my favorite paddling places in the world. I've uh, paddled from uh, Marathon to Wawa and Pukasaw several times. Absolutely love that area. Um, as a kid, we uh, I grew up in Ohio, and we did a yearly fishing trip into uh Lake Huron near um, Manitoulin Island. So that area is still very familiar to me. I've, uh, I've paddled there several times, Philip Edward Island, um, Perry Sound, um, just, you know, just love the Great Lakes. I've done a number of trips there. Um, but 
you know, I always really wanted to do these long expeditions. I would read in Sea Kayaker magazine about these trips, you know, circumnavigating Ireland or the UK or just these these big bodies of land. And the problem is I only got about two weeks of vacation a year. Um, so eventually, though, I did find a way and I circumnavigated Iceland. And that was in 2008 with Freya Hofmeister. Uh, it wasn't intended to be a record-setting trip, but we ended up setting a record. It was meant to be a fast trip. And then the next year, I circumnavigated Newfoundland solo. And that was meant to be a trying to go as fast as I could, and I did set a record there. Uh, but the record really isn't the point. It was just to, uh, I just wanted to go fast. And after that, I got back into the corporate world. And since then, I haven't been able to do the long trips that you might expect. You know, if you want to circumnavigate, say, Iceland, you need a month or more to do that. Uh, and so since then, I've been doing adventure races, long endurance races, for example, Water Tribe has these Everglades Challenge races that go from Florida, from Tampa to Key Largo. They're about 300 miles, and I've really enjoyed doing those. It gives me the same feeling of sorts of being on a long expedition, but I can fit it into a working career without having to take a leave of absence or actually leave my job. Um, so I kayak every week. I train every week. Um, I like to be 24 by 7 fit, which means I'm always training for something because uh, I actually enjoy training. So, uh, you know, a normal week for me would be uh, doing uh, weight work, you know, body work, pull-ups, sit-ups, you know, dumbbell work. I do a time trial every week in the kayak and then a 20-mile paddle on Saturday and a 30-mile bike ride on Sunday. So that's kind of a you know, a normal week for me. And uh, that's kind of what I enjoy to do. So uh, I look, I just turned 62 and I've lost a little bit of speed to the younger guys, but I'm trying to make up for that with better technique, better knowledge and better training. So that's where I'm at now. What about paddling kayaks makes you love doing that? You, you mentioned the rolling, but what else, what, what's special about traveling by kayak? You know, it's it's not necessarily just a kayak. I think I would be just as happy if I would say through hiking the Appalachian Trail or Continental Divide Trail. It's really, I'm a minimalist and I like going at human power and based on my technique and my skill. And I think you, you get more of the experience. You know, um, I was criticized on my Newfoundland trip for going too fast. And I responded saying, well, how much did I miss going at four and a half miles an hour instead of three miles an hour compared to say somebody in a powerboat going 60 miles an hour. Um, so what I enjoy is going at what I call a human speed. You know, uh, you, you just go, you're going fast enough to make it to your destination. You're going slow enough to really absorb your surroundings. Uh, but what I do love about kayak kayaking is, uh, I mentioned the freedom, but, you know, hiking, backpacking is freedom too. It's really the ability to go as fast or as slow as you want, go when and where you want. 
and pick the kind of trip you want to do. I mean, you don't have to do these fast. Yeah, that's that's been my preference, but that's just to challenge myself. Uh, I would like to do another trip to say Newfoundland, where I went as slowly as possible. Took years. Go to every outport, visit every little town, meet as many people as I can. So, uh, so it, it it's the adventure. It's the freedom. It's the simplicity. You know, you're you have enough snicker bars and that's your fuel. You don't have to find gas, you know, petrol. Uh, so I, I just love the simplicity of it. And to me, that simplicity is, is freedom. Um, I mentioned that as a kid, I grew up where we, we were a powerboating family and I had a, kept getting larger and lar- larger powerboats until I was in my twenties until I ended up with like a 25 foot cutty cabin dive platform we were living in Miami, so it was great at the time. But every long trip with my powerboat was stressful. You know, it, those wheel bearings don't sound right. You know, you'd put your hand on them. Are those overheating? And every time you put the boat in the water, there'd be, okay, the hydraulics are out. I need a new battery. Um, so in my mid-20s, I actually sold the powerboat. And the uh, first time my family didn't have a powerboat because uh, my father was retired at that point, and I got into kayaking, and I just loved, again, I could just throw this thing on top of my car and go, and you can go anywhere. You can go to the local park. You can paddle around Iceland if you so choose. So to me, that's that's really the joy of it. it, it it's whatever you want it to be, how no matter how small or how grand you, you want and I think I've seen you mention somewhere that that was around 1984. That was around 1984, yeah. It really, that's when I got out of college. Uh, the big barrier, well, to a lot of folks, I mean, kayaking is an expensive sport when you think about it. Your kayak is four or $5,000. Um, every paddle I buy, a carbon, say if I buy a carbon wing paddle, that's easily four or $500. Uh, you don't have to start with that kind of equipment, but I had canoes ever since I was a scout, you know, a teenager. And as soon as I got my first job and could afford it, that's also when sea kayaks started showing up on the scene. So I think it was in 1986 or 1987, saw a commercial, showed somebody rolling a kayak in a pool at a local outfitter, and I drove there and came home with a Chinook sea kayak, which was the first plastic, you know, rotomolded sea kayak of the time. And um, really haven't looked back since then. In this episode, we plan to talk about some of the adventures you've had and how you fit these sorts of adventures into your life. And perhaps you could talk a little bit first about what motivates you to undertake outdoor adventures and what you get out of it? My career is in IT and computers. And I think kayaking started to some degree, as I told you, I'm a minimalist. It kind of resets you. If you're used to high-tech computers, um, you're in an office, say, with no built, no windows or you can't open those windows, and you're surrounded by air conditioners, machines, and high tech. Uh, you know, I think sea kayaking was my, kind of my salvation. It 
really get you out into the real world. Um, we used to joke about being computer developers that if the lights went out, you just lost all of your work. Or if there was no electricity, everything you've worked on for the your whole career is gone. Unlike, say, an engineer who builds a bridge that maybe is something solid that remains, you know, computers is real, but it's virtual. And what drew me to kayaking is it's about as real as you can get. You're, you're out in the real world. If you don't paddle, you don't move. So to me, it was a perfect complement to, to IT. But, you know, but even more than that, it's just the adventure of being outside. Um, I don't like being inside. So I was just drawn to it. I also have been drawn to water ever since I was a kid. My mother had a deathly fear of water. Um, when she was a teenager, one of her brothers pinned her underwater in a Kentucky river, and she uh, was deathly afraid of water ever since. So when my brother and I came along, she was determined that she would not pass along that fear to us. And at five years old, she had me swimming in a Ohio Lake, Silver Lake, you know, getting swimming lessons, my brother too. And that same day, I was jumping off their highest high dive. Um, you know, I've been love to do free diving, scuba diving. But as a minimalist, I actually prefer snorkeling and free diving. Scuba is great, but I just don't like all of the equipment. I don't like the noise. You're underwater. Every time you breathe out, it says, uh, so I'm a minimalist, and so I like minimal gear. I like to rely on skill and learn technique, and to me, that's what keeps all of this interesting. In some of the things you've written, you've talked about the value of being in the zone or in the moment. I know I definitely noticed that myself because, to me, one of the, my biggest motivations for hiking, sailing, paddling is the aspect of it that resembles meditation. And scientists have looked, and looked into this and discussed the different types of brain waves that, that are generated in these different activities and, and even by people in different sorts of cultures where people who, who live in old-style U.S. cultures, i.e. hunter-gatherer and that sort of thing, live mm -hmm. with uh, their brains usually in a state of, of alpha brain waves. And one can look this up on the internet and see visually how the brain waves are different. Um, and then meditation sometimes even touches down into theta brain waves, which are a lot less complicated and straightforward. And, and then working with IT or, uh, or, or most modern jobs, um, one is usually generating beta brain waves, which are much more complex. And, and there are effects on uh, one's health and there are effects on people's consciousness that result from being in these different states. And it could be said that meditation is often actually even though people might not realize it, but it's it's often geared to moving between these different brainwave states. And for me, my form of meditation has become one of these activities. And so what I'm hearing from you is that you have a, a similar experience that way, and, and it's one of your biggest motivations. 
I would agree with that. I would say that just the physical joy of, say, hiking or the physical joy of paddling is a mantra in itself. And you get into the zone, which you mentioned. And so let me just explain what the zone is to the readers and what the zone is not. Uh, when you're in the zone, you are so fully engaged with your environment that you're not thinking, you don't think about your technique. You don't think how to paddle. You just do it. You, you do it at a subconscious level and the miles just fly by. And it's not just the miles fly by. It's a, it's a very pleasurable sensation. You're, you know, your body is working at a good output. You're moving fast. You're not hurting. You're not suffering. Um, you know, it is a mental and physical state you're in. And when you're in that zone, it, it's one of the most pleasant things that, uh, that you, could, you could imagine. And let me give you the opposite of the zone. And I'm sure readers would, you know, listeners would understand that as well. The opposite of being in the zone is where you're in a kayak. Let's say your elbow's now hurting, your shoulder's hurting, your wrist is hurting. You have a GPS that says, oh God, I've got 15 miles to go. Okay. And then you look up in five minutes. Okay. I've only done 1.1 mile. And then you look up again. Okay. I've just, I haven't even done 1.1 mile. I kind of call that the toddler brain. You're, you're just looking for some magic fast forward to get you through that. And it's the complete opposite of being in a zone. Your, your brain is like a toddler at that point. And you're, you just want to be there now. Uh, you're suffering because you are thinking about every paddle stroke. It'd be like if you were hiking and you had a blister on your heel and you were thinking about every time your foot hit the ground that it hurt. That's the opposite of being in the zone. And for these long distance paddles, whether you're doing a circumnavigation or some of these ultra endurance paddles I did, you have to get your mind out of that um, toddler brain. You have to get more into the zone uh, because you simply won't make it uh, if you're constantly saying, am I there yet? Am I there yet? It hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And so a lot of these long journeys are as much mental as they are physical. And you know, part of my training is to do long distance paddles. And oddly enough, it's called LSD training, which means long, slow distance. And you go long enough, say a minimum of 30 miles to where you can find out if there's any chafing issues, whether your fuel, you know, the food you're eating is keeping you fueled and to train your brain that you do not think about, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? You think about where you are in the moment. And, you know, if you can keep continuing what you're doing right now, eventually you'll be done before you know it. So, you know, it's as much a mental game as a physical one. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge that a lot of people have to overcome. And I think it's even worse these days. I mean, look around. I mean, you watch somebody walking, more than likely their head is bent over. They're looking at a cell phone. So this constant need for entertainment and interaction is the complete opposite of being in the zone. You know, being in the zone doesn't mean keep me entertained every second. It means fully delve into the environment 
where this sounds a little corny, but when I've been out there for like five days on an expedition, you feel like you belong out there. You feel like a seabird. You feel like a dolphin, you know, in a wave. You feel like you're part of that environment rather than a stranger that is just painfully trying to get from point A to point B. So, you know, you have to be physically fit enough that you're not suffering, but there is something to what you're saying about meditation and getting into the zone. Because if if you constantly are thinking, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? You know, time just will stand still and maybe you will not make it. it as I said, it's as much metal as it is physical. So you got into kayaking in the 1980s and you appreciated it from a minimalist perspective. And uh, I think you, you appreciated the transition from power boats to being human powered. In the 1990s and the early aughts, I know that you became very involved in Greenland kayaking. You made trips to Greenland, you made connections, you started an organization. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I guess I should tell you the, the first kayak that I bought, they had two paddles. And the salesman said, well, you know, if you're a woman or a stronger man, we recommend this seven and a half foot paddle. But if you're a stronger guy, we recommend the eight Actually, I think it was an eight and a half foot paddle. So based on that, even the skinniest guy there got the eight and a half foot paddle. Um, and I used that. I had, you know, your typical Werner Kamanos, but Sea Kayaker magazine was a huge influence at that time. And I saw an advertisement for a Greenland paddle. Now, to take you back, I told you I loved canoeing and i always loved the native american canoe paddles like a beaver tail uh, it's just mm -hmm. an elegant flowing shape the i'll call them euro paddles for kayaking at the time were very blocky and clunky in fact several people that i paddled with had a cobra which is a german paddle i believe that was just cut off at the end and had a metal edge riveted over that square flat edge and so to me, these, you know, these native paddles, um, they just look more like what a paddle should look like to me. And I really can't explain it anymore. It had a sense of rightness to it. And I got one and, and really fell in love with it. Um, later on, you know, I got more involved with Greenland paddling. I went to Greenland. I've competed there twice. Um, I started an organization called Kayak USA, and their mission really is to promote, promote Greenland-style paddling and to bring Greenlanders here to America and just as a cultural exchange. And the thing about these paddles, though, is that over time, a lot of our members, it was interesting, were artists and sculptors. And when I asked them, well, what attracted you to this paddle? And they also said, well, it's the shape. And that, you know, I'm a very analytical person. So it was kind of interesting for me. It was that same reaction. It's like, okay, that to me, that's what a 
paddle should look like. That looks like the the flipper of a dolphin, or it looks like a beaver tail canoe paddle. Now, modern modern Euro, I'll call them Euro paddles, have come a long way since then. They're no longer eight foot long, huge paddles. I think a San Juan paddle was the staple in my day. That would you just wouldn't find a paddle like that anymore. Eight eight and a half feet long, huge blade area, bigger than what an Olympic K1 paddler would use. Um, so the the Greenland paddle actually is very elegant. Um, it's very good for rolling. And all of the techniques around Greenland kayaking, and it's not just rolling, it's, you know, a good Greenland kayaker can support themselves in the water where you're back is supported by the water, the kayak is tilted away from you, and you're just floating there, a static brace. Um, just a lot of different techniques that were new to mainstream kayaking in, say, the 1980s. And in the 1990s, a fellow named John Heath, who was out of Texas, who's a kayak historian, he started publishing in Sea Kayaker these these Greenland kayaking techniques. And these are ancient techniques. Um, the oldest book in my library is from sixteen uh, or 1700s by David Krantz. And he documents these roles back hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So these are ancient techniques. And when John Heath created a video of these techniques, a, a Greenlander showed up named John Peterson to give a demo in a pool in, in Kodiak, Alaska. It's really where the Greenland style paddling started outside of Greenland. It was the first time anybody outside of Greenland had seen this stuff. And there were roles, for example, imagine this, you, you take your paddle, you put it under your kayak and you scull it around. And that was a role that David Krantz documented. I think it was in the, in the 1700s. For those who are not as used to kayaks, when you refer to a Euro kayak paddle, you're talking about sort of a stick with a leaf on the end, as, as one might say. There's sort of an oval on the end of a stick is, is a typical European paddle, traditional European paddle. I would agree. To break it down, and you can't really simplify this without offending somebody, so I apologize, but a Euro paddle is often called a spoon. It, right. it has a spooned shape to it. A wing paddle that we will talk about later is like a Euro paddle on steroids. It is a spoon, but the upper edge of that thing is cupped over itself to where it is a very, very asymmetric shape. And Greenland right. paddles... And that, and that, uses, that uses hydrodynamics to increase the effect of the, of the blade as it cuts into the water. It, but at the same time, it's more complicated to use, right? It does. Uh, an asymmetric blade shape. A wing paddle is great for going fast and for forward stroke. But if you try to use the opposite side of the blade, it may act unpredictably. Um, whereas a Greenland paddle is symmetrical. You know, the left and right side of the blade is the same, and they're known collectively as a stick. It just looks like, you know, a, a long stick of wood, but it actually has a fairly complicated blade shape. It is a lenticular uh, shape. It is shaped like an airplane right. wing. And if you actually mm -hmm. make one, you'll find they're, they're actually not simple at all. They're, they're uh, very elegant. And it was, right. it was that elegance that uh, really drew me to them.
And uh, right, and so so part of the utility of all this is that in Greenland the seas are rough, and people were out in very cold water, and so usually the problem with with being on rough water is if you capsize, especially if the water is cold, then you're in a very dangerous situation. And so the Greenlanders figured out how to have these small boats that they could use for hunting and traveling. And when they capsized, instead of the traditional approaches of of either having a wide boat, which would then slow it down in order to keep from, from capsizing, or from having a huge weight attached to the bottom of the boat, which would also slow it down and make it unwieldy and not mobile off on land, which is called a keel and, and keeps the boat, uh, rotates the boat back upright if it capsizes. What the Greenlanders realized was that you could simply, in a kayak, roll completely around so that if you capsized, then you could bring yourself back up and thus you could go out in extraordinarily difficult conditions and be safe. Does that sound right? It, it's close. Greenlanders didn't invent rolling. And okay. some would say maybe in Greenland, the kayak achieved its highest perfection, but that's personal opinion. But there are some Inuit, let's say, that only thought you could roll with a single blade canoe paddle. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the kayak was a hunting weapon, and in all of its forms, it was a solution to a local problem. So the Greenlanders did, they either hunted in quiet fjords, or they'd go out to the very rough waters, say, of the Davis Strait. So let's, let's look at a typical day, let's say, for somebody that had a paddle in a fjord. You, keep in mind, if you did not bring home food, you know, you and the community would starve. So you needed a tool that would get you out there every day. If if you destroyed your shoulder and you couldn't paddle for two weeks, that means your family's going out without food for two weeks. So you would, in this typical scenario, you would paddle, say, seven, seven to nine miles out to the seal grounds. At that point, you'd look for seals, walrus, uh, and you would either harpoon it or spear it. And if you harpooned it, a seal is a very worthy adversary. And you would harpoon it, and then you would throw a line with a float. And that float was to prevent that seal from sinking if uh, once it was dead. Uh, but it was a very dangerous way to live. Uh, a seal, you know, was known that if you didn't mortally wound it, you know, you had another chance to sh- throw a throwing lance. Say this thing you know, wasn't killed. And so it's coming back at you and it's angry. If you miss with the throwing lance, more than likely it would rip holes in the bottom of your kayak. You would settle into that freezing water and keep in mind that salt water can get to 28 degrees or lower. And that would be one hunter that would not see his family again. So it was a very, very dangerous way to live. You know, rolling was just one way to deal with Okay, you throw this harpoon line and this animal pulls you, you get pulled underwater, the harpoon line is around your neck, what do you do? Well, at the Greenland Championship, they still codified 35 different ways to roll, and some of them are, for example, holding your paddle behind your neck, um, holding the paddle in a crook of your arm if you've lost the use of your arm, or if that 
that harpoon line was wrapped around your arm. So a lot of people look at these Greenland rolling methods as kind of esoteric, but each one of them was either meant to deal with a unique hunting situation that if you did not come upright, your family would never see you again, or it was just a skill building exercise. So uh, a very, very dangerous way to live. But uh, I would say, you know, the, the Inuit I've talked to and I've had the pleasure of talking to some of the seal catchers, um, as they call themselves. And these are old men who are talking about their adventures where they still had to bring home food via the kayak. And they would not even think that they were doing any great feat of bravery. One of them kind of put it this way, which was kind of interesting. He said, well, you drive on the interstate, don't you? And I said, yes. And I said, well, you could die at any moment too if you made a mistake. You don't think you're very brave either, do you? And I said, well, actually, no. So I think every generation has its own risk assessment. We do things that are incredibly dangerous, but we don't think of it that way because it's simply what you do to survive. So the Greenland paddle is probably the most suited to that particular activity and and evolved over hundreds of years in terms of being optimized to be able to undertake those activities, right? I would agree. Now, I'm not harpooning seals, so you know, one thing you hear is so okay, that paddle is great for hunting. But, you know, it also evolved to get you out to those seal grounds. It, you know, it gets you out there. And right. once you captured a seal, you might not just get one. You might get three seals. And these were all connected right. in a very ingenious tow system. So you're towing back, say, three seals. So you needed a tool for long distance, something that could still deliver good power, and something you could use day after day without causing injury. So for recreational paddlers, I think that is where, you know, the Greenland paddle really comes into its own. What's remarkable is that you went from power boats, got into this human-powered sport, and then suddenly found it porting you into a international adventure where you're learning you're you're doing cross-cultural communication and learning about this different culture and then building bridges with them and spreading information and knowledge about that and, and building connections between American culture and, and that culture. Yeah, I still have still have some very good friends in Greenland. Um, for example, Miligayak Padilla, who has won the yeah. Greenland Championship multiple times, a uh, very good friend of mine. But, but one point I want to make out with this, when, when I started getting into Greenland paddling, uh, some people get the wrong idea. They say, oh, I get it. You're like those Civil War reenactors. This would be like me hunting with a smoothbore rifle, right? And I could, couldn't say no emphatically enough. Um, the, the Greenland paddle is not a stone hammer you know, as compared to, say, a titanium hammer. It is actually a very elegant tool. And I think it'll just take time for our culture to appreciate that, that a, a culture that is not ours, that without computers and computer-aided design, could actually create a very advanced, sophisticated design. And that's still a hard thing. 
for a lot of people in our culture to accept. And I see it more with the racers, like the, you know, I do wing paddle racing. And a lot of them will say something like, well, they had narrow sticks because they couldn't get a big piece of wood. And if they had computers back then, they would have developed the wing paddle. And that is a kind of elitist and a very wrong way to view it. And if a lot of times you hear, well, why don't you see it in the Olympics? Well, because the Olympics, if you take sprint kayaking, you know, 500 meters, yeah, I'd want a big wing paddle too. But if there was a Olympic event that lasted, say, 300 miles, I bet you would see some Greenland paddles. And in the Everglades Challenge, you do actually use a wing paddle because it's the best tool for that particular application, right? Well, I've used a wing and a Greenland paddle. It, it really right. depends on what you want to use. Um, I started, one reason I started using a wing, and again, a wing is a spoon paddle that has the top edge just curved over. So when you use it, it promotes that it flares out away from the kayak. So rather than coming the path of the blade coming straight back, when you plan it, you plan it, you're almost touching your kayak. And as you rotate your body, it flares out so that at the end of the stroke, it's about two feet out from, from your side. It encourages that to happen. Um, the curious thing is that's exactly how I paddle with a Greenland paddle as well. If, if you paddle with torso rotation rather than just bending your arms, that that's how it works. Um, but you know, the, the, uh, the wing paddle is very good for what it does. I don't like it for rolling, but you can roll with it. I don't like it for, say, draw strokes or blended strokes. It I use it. I'm a little faster with it when I just want to go fast. Um, you know, what it lacks that the Greenland paddle has is seaworthiness. And by that, right. you know, I've done these big trips like in Iceland. It took us, uh, Fry and I were making one crossing, this big headwind came up. It took us 22 hours to actually make it to the other side. Um, and she was having trouble. You know, you, you get big gusts of wind hit you with a wing or a spoon, and that paddle can almost capsize you. In some cases, you have to let go of it with one hand. Uh, you almost never have that kind of issue with a Greenland paddle. The The rougher it gets, the more neutral it is. It it simply doesn't try to spin in your hands and heavy head winds or, you know, uh, you never get air under it that tries to capsize you. Uh, but it, it's not, you know, the only design out there. And so I enjoy using wings as well. In fact, how can you be a proponent of one design if you're not familiar and equally as good with the other design? So, right. you know, I enjoy using a wing. I, I never love to use a spoon very much. But so you you went to these events in Greenland, and what years were those? I think ninety four. Uh, I competed in the Greenland Championship two times. Once was in two thousand, which was the first year it was open right. to outsiders, and and then two years later in two thousand and two. Okay. So then, those uh, competing in that event and being involved in this and then also spending time in Greenland led you on to these two major expeditions. And what were the two expeditions that that we're talking about here? 
two long trips I've done are uh, circumnavigating Iceland and also circumnavigating Newfoundland. And I really don't like the word expedition. I mean, Ernest Shackleton did an expedition. Uh, these are trips, but I really was longing to do a long trip like this. I'd been in the, you know, in my career for a number of years with only say two weeks off. And I always dreamed of doing a long trip where you could say circumnavigate something. Um, and at the time, Sea Kayaker magazine, you know, every month you would be reading, you know, somebody circumnavigating this or that, doing a major trip. And it was just something that, uh, that I wanted to do. So I asked for a leave of absence because you're not going to go around, say, Iceland in two weeks. In fact, it's, um, it's over a thousand miles. It, it took about 35 days. I couldn't get two weeks off either. My leave of absence was not granted. And the, my manager at the time said, well, Greg, why would we put you into a managerial position, a position of authority, so that you could go for a month? And I said, because I need it for my personal sanity, because I've worked here for 15 years. But they actually did not grant a leave, and I quit. So here is a career that I'd been following for years, and the only way I could do this trip was to quit. And I actually have no regrets about that. It actually worked out for me better in the end, and we'll get out, we'll get to that. But I, I think, you know, when I look back over my life, the regrets will be about the things that I couldn't do or didn't do rather than the things that I did do. So I had this incredible wanderlust at the time. I, I wanted to get out there. I wanted to paddle. I wanted to go to New Zealand and paddle there, which I ended up doing as well. Um, and to do it, I actually had to walk away from my career for a time. So in 2007, I teamed up with Fra Hofmeister. We paddled around Iceland. And a year later, uh, solo, I paddled around Newfoundland. And after those trips were done, uh, I worked as a kayak instructor for a year. And my company called me back. And I really didn't want to go back to the corporate world. So I said, OK, well, I'll come back. And I offered them a salary that was much, much higher than what I was paid at the time. And they said, sure. And I went back and actually I don't have regrets because now, you know, I got those trips, you know, that wanderlust out of my system, although I still like to do trips as often as I can. So I no longer feel like I was stuck in this cube with my life just kind of, you know, wasting away till retirement. So sometimes you do have to take dessert first. So I think we're getting to a more enlightened time where, you know, after you've worked somewhere for a while, you, I think more employers are giving you a leave of absence. You know, if you want to tour Europe, you can't do it on a week or two weeks. So, you know, take a month. If you want to take a month, uh, that would probably give you enough time to say, paddle a big chunk or go around Newfoundland or see some of these places you've been dreaming, dreaming about. But, you know, I'm 62 now. I think I could still do these trips. I couldn't do them as fast as I did then. And in 10 years, I don't know if I could do them. So you, you can't just keep pushing your dreams off for some future time. That, that time may never come. I think that's a very important point. Now, 
How did you get the logistics together <laughs> to be able to do those? I mean, you 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 addressed leaving your job, um, which there wasn't an alternative in terms of uh, how much time was needed. How much time was needed to do the circumnavigation of Iceland? How much time was needed to do the circumnavigation of Newfoundland? Well, the actual time for each was about 35 or 40 days, a uh, little less, I believe. But believe it or not, the the whole setup time to go to Iceland was only three weeks. So Freya Hofmeister and I were teaching at the Anglesley Sea Kayak Symposium, and there was a lecture by an Israeli lady named Rodomron, and she was the first person to kayak around Iceland solo. And at this point, Freya and I were splitting up. We had figured out this relationship wouldn't work. But we started thinking, well, before we split up, you know, why not do one of these trips that we've always dreamed about? She was wanting to do them. I was wanting to do them. And we had a teaching engagement in Newfoundland, and we used that as a practice for Iceland. So make sure that our food, you know, our daily mileages were good. And then two weeks later, we had everything loaded and we were on a beach ready to leave on this circumnavigation of Iceland. In fact, this was before you had all of the baggage limits that we have today. So Freya actually flew her kayak. I don't think there was much in the way of fees. I borrowed a kayak. Um, so I have to really give thanks uh, to Nigel Dennis. Uh, he was able to secure a kayak for me in both Iceland and in Newfoundland. And so I used a local kayak. Uh, we flew with all of our food. We filled up our water bladders at the airport bathroom of all places. Um, got a rental car <laughs> ride that dropped us off at our campsite and connected us up with the kayaks that uh, I was the kayak I was going to rent. And the next morning we were off. So it was actually very whirlwind, very fast. Um, and if you know Fry Hoffmeister, you know that was not something that would be unexpected. Uh, she makes plans quickly, changes them just as fast. But yeah, three weeks and and we were at the start of that trip. Now, just to to touch on the names that are going around here, if someone's not familiar with this relatively small world, uh, of course, Freya. I, uh, Correct me if I get the name wrong. Freya Hoffmeister um, is really a celebrity in her own right and uh, um, is one of the most famous of the long-distance uh, paddlers in the world um, in history. Um, just, I mean, people try to get their minds around the, the strength and energy that she has. Well, and um, this was her first long trip as well. But one thing I, I would really like to get people to understand is you don't have to be Frau Hofmeister. You don't have to be a superman or superwoman. Uh, these trips are more about persistence and planning and skills. So, you know, sometimes maybe it's a disservice to think you have to be a super celebrity to do a trip like this. You do not. Uh, in fact, I think most people can't do it because you have family obligations. And uh, at the time, you know, I had no children. 
Um, I wasn't married, so why not? Uh, if I was married with children, I would have a different situation altogether. So I think a lot of it is where you are in your life and what your goals are. But I think that anybody that's dedicated themselves, they're fit, they know how to do self-rescue, they know how to manage incidents, uh, and they've learned judgment, which is maybe the trickiest thing, because you can be taught how to roll, you can be taught how to get back in your kayak. Learning judgment is much more difficult, and you have to fail at some things to, to learn judgment. Uh, and some people are better at having judgment than others. But anybody that has safe judgment and safe skills can do these trips if you have also the physical and mental things that are necessary. And a lot of it is just persistence. So what are good ways of acquiring that good judgment? I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lead with what I'm thinking that this might end up, where this might end up. And that is that uh, I've, I've talked about the Everglades challenge in an earlier episode where I interviewed Pelican, who's gotten three generations of his family involved in that event. And you've been involved in it for a decade now. And just my personal plan is uh, in the future, I'm hoping to get involved in the Everglades Challenge. And a big part of the reason would be to develop that judgment in myself through participating in that uh, event. But uh, what more thoughts do you have on that on that issue? Well, to participate in the Everglades Challenge, Chief, as he's known, makes you sign a piece of paper saying you're an expert for the craft that you've chosen. And for the Everglades Challenge, that could be an expedition canoe, like, say, you know, something that Verlin Kruger used, or it could be a sea kayak, or it could be a racing kayak, or it even goes into sailboats and so forth. So a lot of it is just being experienced with your craft. So in Iceland, the southern coast of Iceland, for example, is black sand. It is featureless, and the waves have an almost unlimited fetch, and they crash on that beach in this big dumping surf. And a number of people, they've had their kayaks actually destroyed in that surf. It just so happens that where I kayak, close to me, Canaveral National Seashore also has dumping surf. And I was familiar enough with it that it was like, okay, this is kind of like kayaking on a bad day at Canaveral National Seashore. And for example, every day I would push Freya off the beach and then I would manage to get off. And sometimes, though, you'd have this big dumping wave crash and hit you. Uh, it'd pummel you, capsize you. I'd have to roll up. On one occasion, my contact lenses were flushed out of my eyes. So I had to get back on the beach, put lenses in and head out. Uh, the point is that you have to be experienced enough that you kind of already know what to expect. So you should know how for Iceland, you should be able to handle dumping surf. You should be able to roll, get back in your kayak. It shouldn't be a big deal. Um, you know, you should be able to do the mileage. So a lot of it just comes from, you know, walking the walk. Um, I think it's helped me. I teach kayaking. So the best way you can ever learn something is to teach it. So I teach forward stroke, I teach rescues, I teach rolling, I've competed in rolling. Uh, so I'm not even at all concerned about rolling back up in a kayak. Uh, you need to know navigation. 
map and compass. What happens if your GPS fails? Do you carry more than one GPS? So you just really have to have the bases covered. Um, and then finally, you just really have to want to do it. There comes a time on like the Everglades Challenge or one of these these expeditions where you've been out for a while, you get some really nasty weather. And a lot of people start thinking to themselves, do I really want to do this? You know, I could be at the Bahamas drinking a margarita right now, having a good time. Why am I doing this? And maybe that's a question, you know, you should think about. But um, on the EC, there's a rule or a guideline that if you ever think about giving up, you know, don't do it on the spot. Get a good night's sleep, get a good meal, and in the morning, see how you feel about it. But you really do need time and experience to do these trips safely. So that means you you actually do feel you're an expert with your craft. You could teach it, and you know, and then you're eager to go out and do it. Touching back on a couple of those names. Nigel Dennis is uh, the author of one of the best-known books on how to see kayak and thus was one of the people in the 1980s, I think, that really led the boom in, into sea kayaking. Is that correct? I think you're thinking of Nigel Foster. Uh, Nigel Foster has uh, done a great video series. He's taught around the globe. And Nigel Dennis of uh, Sea Kayaking UK, you know, has created the Explorer, the Romany, the Greenlander Pro, you know, some of the kayaks that I used on on my expeditions. And uh, Nigel Foster and Nigel Dennis and I are, are good friends. And one reason I wanted to do Iceland is Nigel Foster did that uh, back in the 70s All or right. 80s. And it was before dry suits. And so he did it in a wool sweater, of all things. <laughs> And uh, I asked him about that, and I, you know, and he said, "Weren't you hot in your dry suit?" And I said, "I said, yeah, I was." And he says, "Well, you know how to roll." I said, "Yeah, well, you know, I thought this would be safer, but, um, um, but yeah, there's a lot of history that goes back, uh, a lot of names, um, but right. you know, the important thing though is, um, you know, I still don't think you have to be a big name to do these trips, but you bite off what you want to chew. And no matter what trip that you plan, you'll you'll get some naysayers, and you'll get some people criticizing you. So on on all my trips, I had various people criticize me that you went around Iceland too fast, you you went around Newfoundland too fast, and I really liked a reply. I was watching a video of Race Across America, and these are kind of kindred spirits. They take bicycles. And they go from California or out west to the East Coast. And one of these guys finished and somebody said the same question like, well, don't you feel cheated that, you know, you did it so quick? And I liked that he was so unapologetic. He said, nope, I happen to like to do it fast. And that's how I do it. If you want to do it slower, do your own trip and go at your pace. So I don't think you should apologize for how you feel you want to do your trip. Um, Keep just realize that there will be some people who will criticize you on that either way. But the nice thing is, it is your trip. Do it fast, do it slow. That's what the freedom of, say, kayaking is all about. Well, there's also an element, I think, of, uh, of building up to things. And while you hadn't circumnavigated something as large as Iceland before, you'd been 
involved with sea kayaking for over 20 years at that point, and you had taught, as you'd said, you'd competed in the international competition regarding the skills required for doing that. No, you, you do have to build your, your way up to it. Uh, for my case, I've done, started kayaking in the 80s. I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of overnight camping trips. Um, actually, the first one was at Mosquito Lagoon, which is on the east coast of Florida, close to me. But Lake Superior, multiple times. Isle Royal, multiple times. Um, you know, you just need to get that experience that comes with with doing it. And I do see on the Everglades Challenge that some people are actually doing their first big trip for the first time. And in my opinion, that's that's not the place to do it. The course of the Everglades Challenge, Tampa to say Key Largo, it's always there. You can always do it outside of the the event or do a section of it or do your local lake, camp at your local seashore, lakeshore. But I would just say, yes, uh, you know, part of judgment means that you can assess your abilities. And unfortunately, beginners tend to rank themselves as much more competent than they are. And experts realize that they don't know what they don't know. Um, and I don't know how you can teach that. The best thing is to get go to a good instructor. You can learn much faster with an instructor. If you try to learn by trial and error, it takes a very long time. And the worst thing about that is you obtain bad habits. And bad habits, once they become muscle memory, are very, very hard to unlearn. Enrolling in particular, I've seen people that had the wrong mental image for it. And before they could learn how to do it, they first had to unlearn, you know, what they had incorrectly learned. So, you know, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect, or at least close enough. So get an instructor. And if you're part of a group, like for years, I paddled with the Florida Sea Kayaker Association. I was uh, its training director. I led it for a couple of years. If you paddle with enough people, you know, you'll, you'll be able to mirror your skills in theirs to see, well, okay, I really need to improve at this and that. Or, you know, my as a trip leader, I should not let that person have joined the trip. They really didn't have their equipment. They weren't prepared. I shouldn't have let them on just to be nice. You know, you you have to walk the walk. You have to do it. And that's how you build judgment. You don't take a American Canoe Association class in judgment and learn judgment. You, you have to do things. You have to fail. The thing is, you have to fail an environment that teaches you but doesn't punish you too harshly. So, you know, before you tackle going around Iceland or, say, doing the Everglades Challenge, you know, you should be able to competently do smaller trips in, in conditions that are much less severe. And as you said, you have to build up to it. So you also circumnavigated Newfoundland. Correct. Now, how did the logistics, that was, that was a solo trip, how did the logistics vary you know, I'm sure some things were different. I'm sure you had learned things from the first trip around Iceland. And how? what, what comments would you have on, on comparing the two trips? I would say that solo is much more difficult and potentially more dangerous. But really, it just depends on if you're on a group trip, who your trip partners are. 
Um, a lot of people think it's unsafe to paddle solo, but if your trip partners are all novices that say get into trouble, then maybe you'd be safer on your own. And I'm just throwing it out there for food for thought. But if you find trip partners who are your equals, it is safest to be in a group. Um, you know, some people say you should always paddle in a group of three. And as long as those three kayakers are competent, can do rescues and look after yourself, I absolutely agree that's the safest. But not to be irresponsible, I like to hike by myself. I like to kayak by myself. But you'll find the biggest challenge when you, say, do a solo navigation, circumnavigation, like I did in Newfoundland, is managing this loaded kayak. You figure these expedition kayaks to be tough enough, you figure to land fully loaded onto rocks in a surf landing, they're about 65 pounds empty. You've got 50 pounds of gear in there. You've got you've got maybe six liters of water in there or so, um, hundreds and hundreds of pounds. The toughest thing I had to deal with is manhandling that kayak. And it turns out that I really loved the rock beaches of, of Newfoundland. A lot of rounded rocks. You can grab that boat toggle and you can drag that boat up the beach. A sand beach, you can't do that. Fortunately, I only had three sand beaches in Newfoundland. Um, you land on a sand beach, it's very hard to move your kayak. You would have to take Ikea bags, say, and make five, six, seven, eight, nine trips unloading it. And then the kayak is light enough that you can move it. So if you had a trip partner and you carried your kayaks up the beach, makes it much, much easier. Other things, minor things. Uh, in Iceland, the beach was the perfect size to jam the skeg on my kayak and on Freya's kayak. There's a little gap on each side of the skeg. The stones fit in there perfectly. If you have a trip partner, once you launch, you can say, hey, my skeg isn't working. And you can go there. We had strings tied to the skegs, pull them down, free them. If you're by yourself, and keep in mind, sometimes you're out of sight of land. And if you need the skeg for control, well, first of all, you should probably never actually need that. But if you did encounter a problem, you either have to get to shore or, as I call it, you would have to take a spacewalk, which means you have to get out of your kayak, keeping your hands on the safety lines, go to the back of the kayak and fix something, and then get back into it. Fairly risky maneuver when you're by yourself. So the risks are amplified when you're on your own, and the hardships are amplified when you're on your own. But to counter that, I would say the rewards are also amplified. And um, I'd have to say I never feel lonely on a long trip. Um, you know, I, I like myself for company. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm in a group paddle, I get tired of people chattering and I'll paddle on ahead a little bit. So you have to, you know, it depends on what kind of person you are. I actually like both kinds of trips, but they're very different. But just realize the stakes are notched up higher if you're on your own. If you make a mistake, you know, it's up to you to, to figure it out. And when I was in Newfoundland, they had repeater stations around the island, but they said it could take hours for anybody to get to me. So you can't, you know, today I think paddlers think they take out their personal locator beacon, which is a satellite device. You press a button and by satellite, 
you know, it alerts the authorities. Well, in some places of the world, you could still be floating or on your own for hours. So just keep that in mind. If you're not confident that you can deal with what happens, and sometimes you should never be too confident when it comes to the sea, you know, you just need to give that some food for thought. I like to say about the water, especially the sea, that one special aspect of it is that as, as soon as you cast off from land, you're in the wilderness. You have all sorts of elements there that you're suddenly in. You're, you're not on land, and, and people cannot get to you easily. I would agree with that completely. And even in a relatively populated area like, say, the U.S. and Florida, the Everglades are one of the remote places in the lower 48. But still, if, if you're in the middle of the Everglades and, let's say, you use bad judgment, you want to finish this race, let's say you're in the lead, but the wind is blowing offshore, meaning if something happens, the next stop is Mexico. You know, sometimes it'd be better not to paddle that day, even if you say didn't win. But if you do go in the water and you press that button, first of all, do you, are you sure that that PLB will work? You know, are you going to be incapacitated? So, I, I never want to be in a situation for, where my life relies on this electronic piece of equipment, but you can be very sure that I carry that with me. I carry a, a personal locator beacon. I carry a GPS tracker, which is actually required for the Everglades Challenge so that people can mm-hmm. see where you are. Bring all of that stuff, but make sure you never have to use it. If you do have to use it, use it. One of the most valuable things I've experienced is a lengthy briefing slash sort of beginning of a training with search and rescue team. And this was this was for mountains, not for sea, but many of the things I learned apply across both. In the mountains, if you get lost after lunchtime especially, but anytime, uh, you should be prepared to spend the night out. Yep, I agree. Even if you've called for rescue, you know, they're not necessarily going to be able to get the team together and and get out looking for you and then find you in the same day. It doesn't take just 2 hours. It takes often an entire evening of preparation and then the teams get in place early the next morning and then they expect to spend the day looking for you. And so Whatever's happened, you'd better be prepared to to survive for at least 24 hours. I agree. And I think sometimes people forget a rescue doesn't mean that you're exhausted and you're on an island and you say, I don't want to do this anymore. A rescue might be that you have had a structural failure. Your kayak is either not sinking, but is you're basically in the water. That would be a rescue. Even if your rudder failed, that would not you know, it's not a life-threatening event. You should be able to deal with that. Um, I mean, on this last Everglades challenge, uh, first time ever I've had a shark actually ram the kayak from behind. And it wow. it makes you think a little bit. And um, <laughs> I was, uh, Imagine. Uh, there was nobody, I hadn't seen anybody for a whole day. Yes, I could probably gotten somebody on the radio, but you know, you you really are, out there by yourself. Um, Around Newfoundland, um, probably had the worst shark encounter. 
I heard this noise behind me. Uh, I was paddling on the south coast of Newfoundland near Borgio, and uh, the the actual incident that spawned the interest, if you will, for Jaws actually came from Nova Scotia, not too far away, where it was a fishing boat was actually taken underwater by a great white. But so I wasn't too far from that. And so I heard this noise behind me. I turn around and I see this dorsal fin that is several feet above the water. And you see the tail behind you wagging back and forth. It was just lazily following me. And huge, you know, huge fish. And what can you do about it? Well, thought about it for a minute. And then I decided, all right, I have to go on the offensive. And I tried to turn the kayak as sharp as I could to meet it nose to nose, but the kayak's too heavy. So all I succeeded in doing is bringing myself broadside to this shark that's coming at me. And I said, well, now this is worse. Now my, I'm exposed at the side. And I raised the paddle so that I could hit it as hard as I could. And fortunately, it dove out of sight and I never saw it again. So that was one of those events that get your, your heart beating. But uh, there's only been a few of those. There's a lot of events that get your heart beating in amazing ways. Um, in Newfoundland, uh, in Newfoundland, they have the largest concentration of humpback whales in North America. And often I was paddling, you know, within fields of them. And some of these crossings that I was doing were 50 mile crossings. And that is maybe not the brightest thing to do, but if you're trying to go fast, you're going point to point. And if you're doing a 50 mile crossing, you need some judgment because if you get caught out in bad weather, you, you know, it's really a bad situation. But um, you know, I was paddling all day out there. You couldn't see the land behind you. You couldn't see the land in front of you. Uh, but you started to recognize whales by their sounds. There was this one I called Wheezy because every time he breathed in, I said, what, do you have emphysema or something? It'd be like, it's... And you realize that it's this whole room full of air going into this animal underwater. Um, and so you, you actually, you know, start to recognize these individual animals. Um, I had dolphins offshore that do things I've never seen also in Newfoundland where these dolphins look like something you would expect in marine land. You would, you'd hear this, I thought it was gunshots, but you'd hear pow, 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 pow. Well, it was dolphins doing these leaping out of the water and hitting one after another, just in perfect choreography. Um, just, you know, just amazing, amazing things like that. And, um, that's what keeps you coming back. Or in the Everglades Challenge, I've had dolphins swim next to me and they come close enough to they turn and they look at you with this eye and they swim along with you for a while, then they go away. And that, you know, that's, that's what keeps me back. It gets you out of that chair at work and it puts you out in the real world. And, you know, these trips do take effort, but Part of why I think I like them is because of that effort. You know, uh, when I get back from an expedition, it's like, wow, a shower with hot water. I mean, I've been carrying my water. You actually recognize these modern conveniences that we have. And you realize that they are that, they're conveniences. I mean, I know my mother, she carried water every day. She grew up on a farm. A lot of us weren't exposed to that. So I think it's good. 
to suffer a little and get out into the real world. I, I think that is something good for everybody. How would you compare the scenery in a circumnavigation of Iceland, a circumnavigation of Newfoundland? And I'm sure that the Everglades challenge is completely different from those two, but especially the first two. How, how would you compare the scenery? How would you describe it? Uh, I'll try to give you an answer, but realize, Chris, it's an impossible question. It's like being in an art gallery of, say, some of the greatest paintings in the world, and you say, well, which, which is the best? Uh, I have my favorites. Uh, I would have to say the northwest fjords of Iceland was the most, one of the most amazing places I've ever seen. It looks unspoiled. You have these tall cliffs. You can paddle under waterfalls that are 300 feet or more tall where the water is hitting you with such force, uh, you know, they can almost hurt you. Um, you know, the, the land looks so unspoiled that if you saw like a brontosaurus or a woolly mammoth, you wouldn't even have been surprised. Like, yep, that's right. That fits in. Um, but in Iceland, the Northwest Fjords are among some of the prettiest things I've seen. However, what makes Newfoundland fascinating is it's where the world's two largest currents collide. You have the warm Gulf Stream coming up from Florida, um, and you have the Labrador Current coming down from the Arctic. And the Labrador Current brings with it icebergs that calved into the sea, and that's known as Iceberg Alley. That's, that's where the Titanic met its fate. And all those currents come together at the, the Great Banks off the coast. And that diversity brings you all these whales, sea life. Um, so what was amazing about Iceland was seeing this parade of whales and this parade of icebergs going by. And uh, I thought that was really amazing. And what a lot of people don't realize is Iceland doesn't have icebergs. Newfoundland has icebergs, so you do not see generally icebergs around the coast of Iceland. Um, however, there is one place called Yaklu Salurun Lagoon, Iceberg Lagoon, where the icebergs from one of Europe's largest glaciers calve into like a bay, and you can paddle into that bay. And I paddled in there, and I spent the night there. Actually, Fry and I did, and so we had this brilliant blood red sky and just hundreds and hundreds of these icebergs. And it's not necessarily serene. The icebergs break and crack, and it sounds like rifles going off as they calve, but uh, just, just absolutely beautiful. Um, but then you have the Everglades, and I actually love mangroves. Um, South Florida is covered with these mangroves. The, there's this tree that puts down prop roots and kind of, extends land, their nurseries for all kinds of fish. Uh, but it's a very different kind of beauty. It's like the desert, say, being beautiful. And the Everglades is this maze of islands that if you didn't have a map or GPS, you can't tell where one opening is and another. It just looks like solid, solid green. Uh, but in the Everglades, I've seen the most incredible bioluminescence where, say, at night, Every paddle stroke you make glows with this, you know, beautiful blue-green glow. The trail of your kayak behind you glows. And in some cases, you know, you have your GPS on there, but you're, 
navigating by the stars. And uh, as one star rotates out of you, you pick the next. And um, although, yeah, it's pretty tiring, it's pretty amazing, you know, to be out there where you can see the moonset, you can see, you know, the sunset, and you can see the sunrise all, all in the course of a paddle. So uh, again, that's that's what I love about these trips. But it's impossible to say which one is more beautiful. Uh, I would just say Iceland was the most different for me, and that's why I appreciated it. It looked like you were on the moon in some aspect. This black volcanic rock, very different from the white sand beaches that I'm used to in Florida. Um, but I say you couldn't go wrong with any of those destinations or, or even more. Uh, New Zealand, um, I absolutely love paddling there. Um, you know, I, I would say it's all good. What did you do in New Zealand in terms of the paddling there? For a number of years, and I still continue to do it, uh, teach kayaking, Greenland kayaking, uh, a forward paddling stroke with wing paddles and others. So I was invited to New Zealand to teach at one of the local symposiums. Uh, so went to Auckland and just really fell in love with with New Zealand and its people. Uh, whenever I travel, I say, do, you, do I think I could live here? And New Zealand, actually, of all the places I visited, if I wasn't living where I was, I would say, yep, I could live there pretty easily. Um, just really love the scenery, love the people. Um, just a fantastic place to paddle. Um, just, you know, you're, you're paddling with the cliffs next to the sea, just, and the hiking there is great as well. So uh, I would also recommend that. Certainly is a famous hiking destination. <laughs> yes, um, it is. And even, even more so after they made the Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> Looking ahead, what do you, do you see more larger trips in your future? What what is what is the dream going forward? I probably will retire in a few years, and things may change then. So for the moment, I'm enjoying doing these Everglades challenges because it takes a week of your time, gives you a similar feeling to an expedition where you're out there for weeks. Uh, but I would still love to do a through hike of the Appalachian Trail. I would love to do the Continental Divide Trail. So it's not all kayaking. Um, you know, the thing about doing, say, a through hike is you need three months. That's even a much bigger time commitment to the trips I've done. You know, Iceland and Newfoundland took about 45 days, you know, longer when you add everything in. But a through hike takes months and months. So um, that's something that's on my docket um, when I retire. I also wouldn't ride out another long trip. I would love to visit Newfoundland again. Uh, the, the people in Newfoundland were among the friendliest that I've met anywhere. Um, it may sound trite to hear people say, oh, that restored my faith in humanity, but Newfoundland actually did. The, you know, you show up there, especially solo in a kayak, and often I was invited in. Sometimes I, I didn't want to impose, um, but... Um, you know, some of these families almost would give you the shirt off their back. I, I was having trouble with a day hatch leaking. And this one gentleman I found out got up at four in the morning, drove to a uh, another town, got the caulking I need and was back and, and fixed 
breakfast and, uh, you know, how do you thank somebody for something like that? So rather than do the fastest trip around Newfoundland, I'd like to do, is it possible to set a record for one of the slowest? I mean, I would like to go and see almost every out, you know, outport, all these towns. Um, and you asked earlier, what was the difference between Iceland and Newfoundland? It actually was the people. Iceland, um, the way we did the trip, we didn't run into very many people. We were usually camped in remote spots. Um, in Newfoundland, that's also a lot of remote areas, but I, I landed in more towns, and these are very small towns, but there was more a component of being around people, and, and I actually enjoyed that. Um, so, uh, you know, I won't rule out doing Newfoundland again, um, but I would probably try to take in every bit of the scenery as I could. For something like a circumnavigation of Newfoundland, what are the costs like to do something like that? And, and what are the variables that might be controllable in terms of those costs? It's hard to put an actual price tag on it. But the biggest thing is, if you're not retired, is, okay, you're going to be out of work for a month or more. So you have to deal with that. And I actually had some trouble when I flew into Newfoundland, where I, I guess they thought I was going there to work because they said, well, who who comes here to paddle for a month? And I said, well, well, I am. And the customs agent said, well, what kind of job do you have that you can do that? And I felt like saying, well, I guess a better one than you do. But I just said, well, I took time off and, you know, this is this is what I've dreamed of doing. Uh, so you have those costs. You have emotional costs of if you're married and have kids, are you prepared to leave your family for a month or more? Um, but, you know, in terms of money, it's airfare and getting your gear there. So it's the logistics of getting your kayak there is a major cost. Um, I know Freya had three-piece kayaks that you could fly with relatively cheaply, but those days have changed. Um, you know, what I did, I found through Nigel Dennis, somebody that actually let me use their personal kayak. And then I repaid, you know, that got repaid. I didn't do it. Actually, Nigel Dennis did. So that person was repaid. Um, you might need to buy a kayak and then sell it. The logistics are, are just that. It, it's difficult. How do you get all of your gear there? And But it's not cheap to do. But it's one of those things that if if this is really something you're burning to do, you won't be satisfied until you do it. So, um, I'd say whatever the cost is, I'd say it's well worth it, but obviously it, it's going to be expensive. Do you have any experience with folding kayaks where you have a soft hole that goes over a frame that you build up? I do. I had a Nottarad Greenlander for a number of years, and I, I sold that and regretted selling it. And I bought that so that I, I was dreaming of trips where I could put that on a float plane, fly into some remote area and use it. Uh, but in the end, um, I did not use that. But that would be that would be an option. Uh, but you know, now people are planning some of these trips on paddle boards and other crafts. So it, it's really up to your imagination. Yeah, I saw something about a circumnavigation of something in the Aegean Sea. I think on a one of the um, drop stitch inflatable paddle boards. Um, it's and it, oh, on. I said it's it's pretty amazing actually. Um, the Everglades Challenge, so you have three hundred miles. 
it's always windy. In fact, the time of year was picked when March, you know, is changing. So we usually get 20 and 30 mile an hour headwinds. And the folks on these paddle boards um, finish the race. And um, sometimes they right. can't stand. They have to sit. Um, so if anybody ever feels, say, oh, I can't believe you do that on a kayak. I said, well, you know, my heart goes out to these guys on the the paddle board. So, you know, and we all make fun of the sailors, you know, it's actually very athletic what they do, but we joke with them that they're drinking a cooler of beer on the back while they just move their wrist back and forth on the tiller. Obviously that's not the way it is, but uh, we make fun of them for that. Um, Some of these sailors go through the night as well. And um, on the last Everglades challenge, there was a friend of mine, he's in his seventies. He, uh, he dropped out at the end only because he knew that how bad the pounding was going to be for the last leg. And he's done it before and said, well, I don't have anything to prove and I know how much that's going to hurt. So I would consider it wisdom that I'm just going to call it good at this point. But like I said, it, it it's all good, no matter what craft you pick. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, I'm not sure actually of the best pronunciation, but I've always said Naughty Raid, um, but N-A-U-T-I-R-A-I-D, the French company that is one of the last uh, real producers of the folding kayaks, they are now officially at least being distributed by Chesapeake Lightcraft in the U.S. So that's an interesting development. That that's that was about five years ago. And I, I have not seen much mention of them on the Chesapeake Lightcraft website. So I suspect that relationship has not burgeoned too much. But those are still available. <laughs> those are. Those are. Um, you know, there's been some discussions lately about some of these origami kayaks and safety and other things. And uh, just want to say some safety things that aren't obvious. And I just want to mention it to listeners. If uh, if I am paddling and there's this offshore breeze where, for me, Mexico is the next stop, you may consider a tether to your boat. Or a I use a tether on my paddle on pretty much any night paddle or when the wind gets to such that you think it could be, you know, the conditions are such that if I lost this paddle and could not retrieve my spare, it would be bad. So you have to start even thinking about leashing yourself to the kayak, leashing yourself to the paddle, and knowing when that is dangerous. For example, coming in through the surf with any kind of leash on is absolutely a horrible idea that you get uh, tumbled up or may tagged in the surf. Those leashes go around your neck, uh, you know. So that comes down to judgment and just knowing what to do. And unfortunately, there's no shortcuts. So if you can find a mentor, you know, good instructor, um, but, you know, it, your, your safety is in your hands and you have to have enough knowledge to know, you know, what is safe and, and what isn't. And I don't know a shortcut to learning that. Other than you just have to put your time in, make some mistakes, but get good instruction and be around people that can mentor you and, and help you on your way. Yeah. Well, as you said earlier, I mean, finding a club to join or, or group or people to go with, um, you know, that's that's a big part of the challenge and um, in, in terms of learning judgment. Yeah, I agree. And skills. What are your favorite... Sources of information, podcasts, blogs, magazines, authors. 
Well, in the past, I would have said it was Sea Kayaker magazine. Uh, now it's kayakers, it's people. So, um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is a lot of the paddling I'm doing now is I have a V12 surf ski and I'm doing these local races. Uh, they're 10 mile races. And my goal last year was to break seven mile an hour as my average for one of these races. And that may sound fast, but that's actually pretty middle of the pack, believe it or not. These, these kayaks, these surf skis go pretty fast. I managed 6.9, so that was pretty good for my age group. But that still means the 30-year-olds are three minutes ahead of me, which doesn't sound like much. But on the water, three minutes means you can barely see them. So, um, you know, what I do now when I'm not doing these long trips is I love doing these these shorter trips, these 10-mile trips. It's more high intensity. And you figure if you're used to a 300-mile journey that takes you about four days, these you know, these short races, 10 miles, take about an hour and a half. So if you figure if you're going to suffer, it's pretty quick. And I, I mean suffering there kind of tongue in cheek. So so that's what I've been up to lately, doing these shorter races. Uh, last year, I also did the Chattajack, which is a 31-mile race down the uh, Tennessee River Valley, leaving from Chattanooga. Uh, so I've been enjoying those as well. And I, I do still like the competition, and it's really not about beating the next guy. It's really about pushing yourself to see, right, can I do better? My average is 6.9. Can I paddle at seven miles an hour for an hour and a half? It's, it's more that kind of thing. And, of course, if that, that makes you the winner, that's even sweeter. But in the end, especially for something like this Everglades Challenge, people often say they're not really racing against somebody else. You're you're dealing with the course or you're, and I don't like the term battling nature, but you're, you know, it's you against the environment. And if you can make that all work in your favor rather than fighting it, you know, things are all the much better. But um, uh, so it's not all long trips. It's these short trips and uh, backpacking trips as well. Every summer, a new national park every year. Uh, so that, that kind of keeps me going having, having goals, short-term goals and, and long-term goals. What is the best way for listeners to find out more about your adventures? I do have a website, gregstamer.com, but actually um, find me on Facebook. I will I post more on Facebook these days. Uh, you can find my email address on my website. And if you have questions, I'd be uh, happy to answer any questions anybody has or you know, I run into people who say, hey, I'm planning to do a trip around Iceland or Newfoundland. You know, can you give me some pointers? You know, I, I help where I can. Um, but just any of those places. And I like to give back. So, you know, I, I teach. Now I teach mainly for volunteer uh, services. I just do it to give back to the community. Um, so I like uh, helping others. I like if I can help you with some information, I'll try to pass that on. Because um, I love that the sea kayak community is so small and it's kind of, you know, pay it forward. But contact me and I'll, I'll help you in whatever way I can. Well, that's very generous of you. Greg, thank you very much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Chris, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com and please join our Facebook group under the same name. 
If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors.